we're very glad to have back in the neighborhood the Civil War muster after a long absence from COVID. And I see we have some of our soldiers and their ladies here with us this morning uh, who have come back in time 160 years ago. I heard so many bombs going off yesterday. I thought I was back in Flint where I grew up. <laughs> Today, we're going to talk about humility. According to Sirach in the first reading and Luke in the 14th chapter of his gospel, but we're going to start with Hebrews, take a little detour into that New Testament letter that was written expressly for a Jewish audience to convince them that in Christ we have the fulfillment of all of our hopes, dreams, and desires, but also the fulfillment of the prophecies of the Hebrew Scriptures. The letter to the Hebrews was written with the intent to bring Jewish people into the Christian faith by showing how Jesus is a continuation of everything they've been hoping for. And that is why we see in the letter to the Hebrews, a lot of comparison and contrast between events forecast in the Old and fulfilled in the New Testament. And today, Hebrews, our second reading, gives us a contrast between the same God on Mount Sinai who also did greater things on Mount Zion. What about Sinai? That's right inside the desert of Sin, where Moses led the Israelites when they went dry shot across the Red Sea after their being freed as slaves in Egypt. Moses went on top of that mountain, and he was up there for six weeks eating and drinking nothing. The top of the mountain was covered in cloud by day, fire by night. There were lightning bolts. The people were terrified. They were terrified that that awesome creative God who has such power also has the power to destroy. And so they lived in fear of the Lord, not the healthy sense. They thought they might meet their end if they got too close to him. So it was an invisible God that they wished to keep at arm's length. It's the same God who then on Mount Zion that's Jesus, who is God. Mount Zion is the place of the Last Supper. It's in Jerusalem. In the upper room in Mount Zion, Jesus instituted the priesthood. At the Last Supper, he gave the first Eucharist and said, do this in memory of me, that the flock may be fed until the end of time when he comes in glory. Same God. But whereas in Mount Sinai, he was so far away, and it was just scary. On Mount Zion, it was intimate. There it was immense and intense. Here, it's intimate. The creature and the creator intimately connected in this life that we might be forever joined with one another in the next. We see different strategies of how that same God dealt with sin in the Old Testament and the New Testament. In the Old Testament, you did the crime, you did the time. Many people died because of their sins. In the New Testament, in Christ, from Mount Zion, we have the opportunity to be reconciled to God and to each other as God allows his son to take on his shoulders the penalty of our sins instead of making us pay the debt we cannot afford but continue to rack up. Now to humility. Sirach, the Old Testament, says, conduct your affairs with humility and the greater you are, the more humble you should be. It extols humility as a virtue. First and foremost, what's humility? So many of our words in English come from Latin and humility in Latin is hummus, not the dip in which you dip your chip but rather hummus meaning from the earth. Humility, from the earth, the lowest place, and then we come up. That's humility. Pride is where I think I'm up here. Humility is where I belong, down there. That's humility. Sirach was written 175 years before the birth of Jesus. And much like the centuries before and after, Israel and Judah were not free during that century. They were occupied at that time by the Greeks. And whereas people of the Jewish religion looked upon humility as a virtue and something we should aspire to, for the Greeks in their paganism, they thought humility was a sign of weakness and it was frowned upon. And since we're entering into a neo-paganism here in the 21st century, there's nothing new under the sun. I think once again, too many people in the world view 
humility as a sign of weakness. They would prefer pride and arrogance and selfishness and stubbornness, but not Jesus, not Jesus. He was the King of kings, the Lord of lords, the maker of all things. In the beginning of John's gospel, we're reminded through him, all things come to be. Without him, nothing exists. Jesus then, he's God, very powerful. And yet God chose to encase himself in humanity, like us in all things but sin. Jesus, born of a womb and a woman like we were, he was born poor, lived poor, died poor, born in someone else's barn, buried in someone else's tomb. And whereas as that King of Kings and the Prince of Peace, he could have chosen to spend this life surrounded by the worldly, the wealthy, and the wise, instead he chose to surround himself with the last, the lowest, the least, the leper and the lame, the good shepherd who would leave the 99 to look for the wounded, lost and wandering sheep. That's Jesus, and that's what he expects of us. That we're not as great as we think we are, but we can be greater than we've been, that's for sure. That's the process of conversion. Today we find ourselves at the beginning of the 14th chapter of Luke. We've been journeying with Jesus all summer long from chapter 9 where he first predicted his death. And now he's going up to Jerusalem for the Passover and for his passion. And he's stopping in every village along the way. And his message continues to be the same. Service, sacrifice, discipleship. The cost of discipleship, you must deny yourself and take up your own cross and follow me. But it's often about humility. Repeated in the gospel today is something we also heard in last Sunday's gospel. Whoever humbles himself will be exalted. Whoever exalts himself will be humbled. And now Jesus reinforces that theme in the home of the leading Pharisee. What we see oftentimes in the scriptures that are selected for us in the Mass is that whoever made those choices, some bishops or cardinals a long time ago, they skipped around including missing verses within certain chapters. For instance, today we have verse 1, and then it jumps to verse 7. What do we hear about the five verses in between? What happened there? Verse 1 of chapter 14 of Luke tells us Jesus was invited to the home of a leading Pharisee that he might dine with them, and they will all observe him carefully to find fault with everything he says and everything he does. Jesus doesn't enter the house until verse 7. In the five verses in between, he's dealing with someone outside the house, a leper who is a beggar. That leper shouldn't have been there. They weren't allowed in the cities because they were thought to be cursed and the air around them contaminated. And if you breathe that same air, God forbid, touch them, their curse became yours. And whether you became a leper or not, you'd be marked as unlovable, untouchable, and unclean. This leper is desperate. That is why he has come to this gathering of wealthy people, hoping someone will show him some form of charity. If Jesus wants in that house, he should stay away from that man. And yet not only does he breathe the same air as him, he goes up to him, he touches him, he heals him. Jesus takes away the curse by taking it on himself. Now, those other Pharisees, they watched all of this. Why did they let Jesus in there? Once again, The curse moves from one man to another, from the leper to Jesus, and if they let Jesus in the house, then they're going to be accused of being unlovable, untouchable, and unclean. But they let him in anyway, and that's not because they're willing to overlook what he has done. It's because their hatred for him is so great, they don't want to give up this opportunity to hear him say something or watch him do something that will give them even greater reason to accuse him of treason or blasphemy. But no sooner is Jesus in the house does he turn things upside down by insulting the host and everybody present, the host for only inviting wealthy people, the guests for all scurrying for position to try to get to the highest place. 
Jesus, once again, the prince who lived like a pauper, thinks that we should start low and be invited higher. These Pharisees, they're looking for position, not in the heavenly banquet, only around that table because they're so self-righteous and so in love with themselves and drunk with their power. But Jesus wants them, as he's on his way to the cross, to accept his invitation to repentance and to follow him, to become his disciples, only that he might lead them to heaven, only that he might lead them to the Father's house. They reject him, they reject that offer. His journey to the cross will continue and he will still give his life for friend and foe alike. We can learn a lesson or two in humility. All too often, we find ourselves pretty proud of our earthly accomplishments and we want other people to notice them too, but Jesus wants us to use these gifts, talents, and abilities to give glory to God, to do things in Jesus' name for the glory of God, not our own. The psalmist tells us, not to us, not to us, Lord, but to your name be the glory. That's the challenge for all of us, because what do we have that does not come from him? Our very life, the land we're standing on, the gravity that keeps us here instead of floating off into space. Everything comes from God. Everything belongs to God. Everything should be used to give God glory, honor, and praise. Jesus humbly invites us to his house for this feast. And unlike the Pharisees who only invited the worldly, the wealthy, and the wise, Jesus thinks we're all the same. We are all his brothers and sisters. We are all sons and daughters of God. And his house is in every Catholic church, wherever and whenever the Mass is being celebrated. And he invites the young and the old, the saint and the sinner, the slave and the free, people of every country, every culture, every continent, every century, to come and to be his guest at this feast in hopes that one day we'll receive that greater invitation to join him at that feast. We come with humility. We bow ourselves. That's why we take a knee and genuflect before we approach the altar because we're in the presence of the King of Kings who in just moments will make himself here present, body, blood, soul, and divinity on this altar, not for his good, but for ours so that we might have once again that bread of life that comes down from heaven. Jesus became poor that we might become rich. And so today, my friends, we celebrate humbly humbly walking with God, that lonesome way of the cross that will lead us to Calvary and then with Jesus to victory. Let us stand and profess our faith.